And if you would open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to slow down a bit this morning and highlight a single verse because of how crucial we believe meditation on this verse is in our season and and for our church. A few Christmases ago, I was sitting in a garage uh, trying to put together a battery-powered drivable toy car for my little son. Unfortunately, the people who had created the directions had evidently created them starting in a, in a different language, and the translators had not taken the time to ask whether the same term in two different languages means the same thing. Perhaps more unfortunately, I don't know very much about how a real car works, And my intelligence wasn't a lot of help either. (laughs) So I sat there and stared and called someone who I thought might know what this term translated back into the original language might possibly have meant, translated into a more commonly used term in English. It was a somewhat confusing process. Anyway, what I needed was simple and clear directions in the midst of what was for me a complicated situation. And I believe that's what we need as well. We continue to live in a time of cultural upheaval. Political forces are raging across the political aisles and across the main streets of America. Major parties are issuing nationwide legal challenges to a presidential election. Public figures are warning, or in some cases promoting, the end of democracy as we know it. There is an erosion of Christian protections under the law and an obliteration of Christian morality in the culture. We don't know the future of our country or the oncoming shape of the world. What national or global interests will gain political or military power? How are we supposed to think about the times in which we live? What are we supposed to do? Sometimes I think in moments like this, we want the Bible to line up with our instinctive worldview, some of which is based on the Bible, and some of this might just be based on our preferences, how we'd like the world to be. We'd like to tell the Lord how we think we should think and act in a time like this. But the Lord and his word do not bend to our will. Sometimes we have a vision For what Christian courage and faithfulness should look like, what Christian citizenship should look like, but God does not need our vision. We need His. Sometimes we want this complex world to have a a mysterious and complex solution, one that we have come up with in our own mind that is, is unique and particular to our ability. But God's wisdom is not the wisdom of this world. Sometimes we want the strength of this world to be met with human strength, but God's weakness is stronger than the strength of this world. So, we bring our perspectives to this word, and we find in the chaos that God's instructions are actually quite simple. 
God has given us clear and simple directions for how to live at the end of the ages. Let me say that again. God has given us clear and simple instructions for how to live at the end of the ages. We're going to read some of those instructions this morning. We're going to focus on verse 9, but because the context is so important, I'm going to back up and read the context beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. And here's the verse we will spend extended time on this morning. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. What does a dinner invitation have to do with the end of the world? Much in every way. I want to make two points this morning. The first is to look back at the context, this very important statement that Peter makes in verse 7. Two points. First, the end times mindset. And then second, we'll look at verse 9. The end times hospitality. End times mindset and end times hospitality. Let's look at this statement again just so we understand the context. The end, look at verse 7. The end of all things is at Hand. Bart did an excellent job last week talking about this important word, the end. It doesn't just mean the chronological end. It means the culmination. If we look at the storyline of the Bible, it means that the, the final era of this world's history has come. There is no more substantial moments or acts of God to be done other than the return of Christ Jesus. The building of the church is the, the final era before Christ returns, according to Scripture. So the culmination, we might say, the end, the end goal, the end time, the end era of all things, all of God's purposes, has come. The only thing we are still waiting for is for the culmination of that end to come in the return of Christ and the establishment of his eternal kingdom. The end of all things has come. Peter is reminding Christians that we live in the final era, the culminating era of human history, and we are to be living in preparation for the return of Christ. He's been saying that since the beginning of this letter. Peter is determined to fix the eyes of his people, of his listeners, on the coming of Christ, on the conclusion of this age, and the eternal kingdom that has been promised to all believers because of Christ Jesus. That means that the current state of this world and its defiance of God in its idolatry of political power and human sensuality is not permanent. It is temporary. 
And Peter wants this to be established in the minds and hearts of his people. And we need to have it established in our mind and heart as well. If we do not have an end times mindset, the instructions of the Bible about how to live in this end times will not make sense. If we think of this world as continuing perpetually and our job is establishing a a kingdom on this earth that is to last any length of time, we will not find joy and comfort and purpose in these simple instructions that are based on the end times mindset of the scriptures. Because these are the end times... Christians look forward to the return of Christ as the final climactic moment to take place in human history. His return is the hope and longing of his people. And living in light of that return is their call to action. We are not to be assimilated because of this. This end times mindset means, if you look back at the book of Peter, it makes it very clear, we are not to be assimilated into the culture of this world that will pass away. And we are not to dominate this world by force. Neither of those options, and those are the twin dangers of every Christian generation. To assimilate or to dominate. To crave crave creating a Christian nation by force or to assimilate in order to avoid persecution. The Bible allows us to do neither. Because this is the end times. This world is coming to an end. It doesn't mean that we have no good to do in this world. It just means our good is a delaying action, resisting the decay of this world, so that the, the, the multitude of people to hear the gospel can hear the gospel, can turn towards Christ, and can be saved in the end. Each generation trends towards these two idols, and I think they are very present today. To crave political power so that we can create a heavenly kingdom in this age or assimilate to the culture for fear of political or social persecution. And yet Jesus said, Jesus said, here's very clear instructions for us, Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. And Paul said that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Let that stick in our minds. That's an end times mindset. That makes no sense if this world is going to continue perpetually. Then we absolutely must wrestle against flesh and blood. We look for the coming of Jesus Christ who will set all to rights, who will call every power to submission, who will reign in righteousness. We live at the the end of the ages and we define our moments, our weeks, our years, our decisions, our budgets, our choices, our homes, our community, our passions as living, as Randy Alcorn puts it, on the edge of eternity. It is not that our efforts in this world are worthless. No, it is that all we do in this world, we do in light of a coming king and not in order to build an earthly kingdom. We must live with an end times mindset. The biblical teaching on the end times is complicated in one way and very simple in another. It is complicated in that the Bible simply does not provide specific details on how or when the final end will come about. We don't know the month, we don't know the year, and we're actually told that it is not for us to know. And like every 
normal child, we argue with that statement. How come? And the father tells us it's not for you to know. We don't know exactly which nations will rise against which nations, just that they will. We don't know exactly how social and governmental powers will be used to persecute the church and tempt God's people away from righteousness, just that they will. In other words, we don't know if America will turn into a blatantly pagan nation persecuting Christians directly, or if it will finally fall to some other world power, and that power will persecute Christians. We just know that one way or the other it's going to happen. We don't know which wars will be the last wars before the end, only that we will hear of wars and rumors of wars, of death and famine. In other words, we know the contours and the main themes of the end, but not exactly when or how they will come about. And that part of the end is concealed from us, probably to keep us trusting in the wisdom of the Lord who knows the end from the beginning. That part of the end times in the Bible is complicated it is vague it is made ambiguous and God did not make a mistake when he made it that way it's not like God isn't sure what's going to happen exactly he just chose not to tell us but the second part of the end times mindset is very very plain very clear actually in contrast you can see God's intention These details are not given to you. These commands are as specific as I can make them. I remember watching a a comedian one time talk about Pop-Tart instructions for toasting Pop-Tarts. And they were very specific. (laughs) And God is like that with his children. Very specific when he wants to be. And that should inform us when he's not specific. We shouldn't think that he is. Because he's able to be very specific when he wants to be. That is, that the specific part of the end times teaching in the Bible is that the main commands and calling that we have are very, very clear. It's crucially important that we not confuse these two categories. It is possible, listen to this, it is possible for Christians to assume that the timing and circumstances of the end are supposed to be very clear, and the calling of the Christian is very mysterious. But that is to reverse the way the Bible teaches us about the end times. The details and specifics of how the end will come are somewhat vague and general, but the commands to Christians are very clear and specific. To give a few examples, the word tells us that some people will claim to be the Messiah and we should not believe in them. It tells us that false prophets will arise and call us to follow after them and we should not. He tells us that some will claim that Jesus never came in the flesh and we should reject them. He tells us that before the end, even family members of Christians will betray them and hand them over to governments, but that in all of these things, we should be faithful to keep believing in Jesus and obeying him. The instructions for the end of the world 
are to keep doing in the midst of temptation and difficulty the same kinds of Christian obedience that Christians have been called to since the days of Peter. And this passage is no exception. We're called to have an end times mindset, to live in light of the return of Christ, to know that his coming will surprise us and find us doing whatever we ordinarily do. So our ordinary lives had better be in conformity to the Bible. Tom Schreider, speaking of this passage in 1 Peter, says this, We have a typical feature of New Testament eschatology here, end times teaching. Typical. Nowhere does the New Testament encourage, nowhere, nowhere, does the New Testament encourage the setting of dates or of any other kind of charts. Eschatology is invariably used to encourage believers to live in a godly way. We might expect a call for extraordinary behavior. Something unusual would be demanded in light of the arrival of the end. Peter exhorted his readers, however, to pursue, pursue virtues that are a normal part of New Testament paranesis. That means teaching or exhortation. You might expect extraordinary instructions, unusual instructions. But instead we are given the call to pursue ordinary obedience in times of extraordinary difficulty. We are to be sober-minded. What are we to do in light of the end, Peter? What are we to do? We are to be sober-minded, not drunk in the ways of this world. We are to be self-controlled, not held as prisoners to sinful passions. And above all, we are to love one another. And this love has particular application that Peter wants to bring to our attention. There is a particular practical way that the Christian community is meant to show that they are the end times community. The community preparing for Christ. And that way is by showing hospitality. It's not confusing. It's not complex. It's not strange and mysterious. It is very plain. How? What is one key way God wants you to live as if you know we are in the end times of the world? Show hospitality. It's almost laughable in its simplicity. It's like the wisdom of this, this religion that we have that is unbelievably simple. Unbelievably clear. What are you to do in light of the end of the world? Show hospitality. Well, that's not very complicated or intellectual. No! It's hard enough to obey simple instructions. Can you imagine if we had complicated ones? God gives us very simple instructions. Why? Because he's a gracious and merciful father. And he wants us to actually obey. What kind of father is it who says, Okay, son, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go downstairs. I want you to open the drawer to the cabinet. I want you to look in the third box from the right in the toolbox. I want you to find the three-quarter inch screw. I want you to separate them from the four-quarter inch screw. Then I want you to find five different kinds of wrenches. Label them and organize them. I want you to bring them all back up to me, and I want you to fix the pipe in the bathroom by yourself without any help. I'm sure you'll do a great job. No. No good dad tells their little son that. Son, go get me the toolbox and bring it here. Got it. And even that they can't get a lot of the time. 
Listen, we want to tell the Lord how complicated we should be able to be. And he says, yes, but you're not. What do I want you to do at the end of the world? Have people over. Point number two, end times hospitality. End times hospitality. Therefore, love one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, it's just flowing out of it. In light of the end times, what are you to do? Be holy. Be holy as as the Bible tells you to be holy. Be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. And above all, love one another. And what does that look like? I, I need even more specifics. Where is the toolbox exactly? Let me give you as specific as I can. How do I love one another? How, how, do I, how do I do this love that covers a multitude of sins? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The word there in verse 9, show hospitality, it's actually an adjective. It's, it's, you might think, be hospitable. Hospitable to one another. In other words, it's supposed to describe, it's a character trait that should describe the love of the Christian. It is a hospitable love. It is a love that is demonstrated in a lifestyle of having people in your home. I mean, it could, it could not be more simple. Our home is to be an expression of of our end times mentality and determination. Since we live at the end of the world, have God's people in your home. Our home is to be a shelter, a a place of welcome and, and rest for the people of Christ. Notice here that the intended target is Christians. Show hospitality to one another. Other places in Scripture make it clear we're also to show hospitality to strangers, That could be an entire sermon about how effective and and how important that is. And yet here the focus is on Christians. Show hospitality to one another. The Bible is clear that in a world in which Christians are exiles to popular culture and exiles to political power and targets of cultural scorn, there should be a place where they feel nothing but love and welcome and encouragement and shelter, and that place should be our living rooms. End times hospitality views our home not as a bunker to keep people out, but as a shelter to take people in. We should view our home not as a castle to display our greatness, but as a means of bestowing the love of Christ on his people. And and don't we start to see the connection? If this is the end of the world and that end is going to terminate at the coming of Christ Jesus, and that day is going to find us doing what we ordinarily do, then shouldn't we ordinarily be loving those people that Christ loves? What else do we think would be more important for Christ to find us doing on that day? 
This command flows out of the command to love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And apparently, this covering love is not meant to be merely mystical or hypothetical. I love you from a distance. No. But practical. We are to literally absorb in our homes the needs of our fellow Christians to endure and overlook the messes that they make. The Christian home is an instrument in the hands of the one who welcomed us into the household of God. It is to be a place of rest on behalf of the one who took the burden of our sins. We are to feed those who belong to the bread of life. We are to shelter the sheep of the great shepherd. Look, Jesus is not impressed with presidents and elections. He is not impressed with politically power-hungry social activists. He is not impressed with the rising and falling nations of the world. His eye is fixed on his people. And he wants his people to love one another. With a snap of his fingers, the nations fall. With the breath of his mouth, all of their host. He is not impressed by the ups and downs of the political world. What he is looking for is whether his own heart is displayed in his church. Christian hospitality is also a practical way of guarding us, I think, from family idolatry. Now, family is a gift. It is a calling. We should guard and protect family time from ungodly intrusions of too much work or too much outside play. But our family, our biological family, is not to be so central that our home is rarely or never described, remember it's an adjective, described as a place of welcome and rest for our family in Christ. Hospitality is like a a lived out metaphor of the gospel, a giving again and again the kind of shelter and rest that are given to those who are united to Christ. Now notice, notice the wisdom of Paul the pastor. This hospitality to one another is to be without grumbling. Don't, don't you feel the fatherly tone here? I mean, don't, don't you understand? The, the, the five-year-old child is more like us than not like us. We get better at hiding it or just saying it later to our spouse instead of in public. But it's still the same heart. Dad, all the way down to the garage? It's heavy. I'm tired. Joe is loud. Jimmy is messy. That family eats too much. Those children don't know the meaning of organized toys. We have new carpet. And I like looking at it. And not at the people who pour things on it. Think of the myriad of grumbling that can take place when you begin to show hospitality. I mean, we grumble (laughs) because of the loss of our free time. 
Hospitality takes up time that we could spend on ourselves or on our family alone or on advancing our work or on vacation. I can't have somebody over because it's really, really important to me that I keep advancing at work until I retire. Well, at that point, most of your life will be over. And if you've worked so much that hospitality was literally never even an option... You've worked too much. We can grumble because of the loss of money. Hospitality requires sharing what we have with others. I mean, you're not going to invite them over and then you eat in front of them. I mean, you can, but it's, they won't come again. We can grumble. To be clear, hospitality, it's, it's not... It's not professional hostessing. I'm not showing, talking about displaying your greatest meal. That, that is not, this isn't like an avenue for pride. Look at my amazing house and my amazing meal and my delightful. No, that, this isn't like a display of competition here. It's not about steak and lobster. It can be peanut butter and popcorn. It is sharing whatever we have freely and joyfully to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we must not grumble at sharing what we have since Christ has given it to us. We can also grumble because relationships require effort. And typically hospitality doesn't work if you bring them in and don't talk to them the entire time. Relationships require effort, and Christian relationships are not always easy. We're not glorified yet, and they're not either. Sometimes Christians speak rudely, or sometimes their children spill drinks or disorganize organized toys or stay longer than we thought they would, and we don't get as much sleep as we thought we would. In all these moments, grumbling, either in our heart or with our lips, is our temptation. And yet, end times hospitality keeps in mind that Jesus is returning and that our calling in this world is to use what we have for his glory and the good of his people. We are to remember that our time does not belong to us, but to him, since he purchased us with his blood. We're to remember that our money does not belong to us, but to him who became poor so that we could share his inheritance. We're to remember that however weak and sinful or rude this fellow Christian is, they are a brother and sister in Christ, a lamb of the flock of Christ, a dear son or daughter of our Father in heaven. And when we welcome them into our home, we are welcoming in one that is loved by our Savior. To grumble against sharing our home with them is to grumble against the care of Christ himself. Christ himself identifies with his people. So we should rightly sacrifice and welcome with joy those people into our homes. Let's throw out all the objections. Hospitality is not only the calling of the wealthy or only the desperate need of the lonely or only the enthusiastic passion of the extrovert. It is the calling of the Christian. Alexander Strzok wrote an excellent book called The Hospitality Commands. I would commend it to you if you want to study this 
It's not long, but it's, it's very effective, the hospitality commands. And he says this, The New Testament does not suggest that only certain people or certain cultures have the ability to show hospitality. Rather, it portrays hospitality as an essential, listen to this, an essential part of brotherly and sisterly love and Christian community. Since we are commanded to love one another as Christ loved us, we should not be surprised to find a New Testament command to practice hospitality. It is something all Christians should do in obedience to God. Helga Henry, the wife of writer and theologian Carl F.H. Henry, forcefully expresses this point. Christian hospitality is not a matter of choice. Listen to this. Let it press into your way of living. Let it press into your budget categories. Let it press into your outlook on this next week, month, year. Let it press into this. It is not a matter of choice. It is not a matter of money. It is not a matter of age, social standing, sex, or personal. Personality, Christian hospitality is a matter of obedience to God. We need to ask ourselves, are we following this instruction and living like end times Christians? I love this quote that Bart just brilliantly brought to us last week. This is as, as simple as I can think to make it, and he made it this way. No end times doctrine is biblical if it does not lead us toward the end time community of Christ. The end of the world is not a time to isolate, but a time to invite. The shaking of culture is not a time for perusing the intentionally hidden mysteries of God, but a time for obeying the commands God has given us. Listen to this quote by Dustin Willis and, and Brandon Clements from another book on hospitality. Pursuing biblical hospitality as a way of life will take a very intentional shift in your life and mentality. It will happen only by offering the entire way you view your home to God and letting Him turn it upside down in the best way possible. You'll have to learn to think of your home primarily from a Christian perspective and let that mindset uproot the ways your culture has taught you to view your home. Now, our temptation in these moments is to assume we know more than God. There must be something more complicated we should be doing as Christians to live on the edge of eternity. What does a dinner invitation have to do with the end of the world? Everything God says. Actually, the whole Bible story can be told from the perspective of hospitality. Willis and Clements say this again. Throughout the saga of history, God consistently initiates relationship. He is a gracious host, constantly welcoming in wayward sinners who deserve his wrath. A people whose only hope is that he would show them undeserved hospitality. Th think about the story of the Bible from this perspective. The beginning of time finds God placing Adam and Eve in his garden. Prepared perfectly for them. Filled with delightful food for them to eat. And fellowship for them to enjoy. Yet rather than enjoy God's hospitality... They seek to displace God, to hide from God, and finally they are exiled from God. 
The story of the Old Testament is one of God rescuing his people from slavery, feeding them in the wilderness, and bringing them into a promised land flowing with milk and honey. A place, as the psalmist would say, where their cups would overflow with blessing. Then the Lord Jesus comes, and he reveals himself as the new wine of his people, the bread of life. God is not embarrassed by simple metaphors even to describe his son. He is the living water that leads to eternal life. And when his disciples are fearful, he assures them what? That he is going to prepare a place for them because in his father's house are many rooms. On the night before he was betrayed, he established a covenant meal, showing them that he himself will be the spiritual meal that will feed their needy souls, that his life will be the source of their life, and his death will be the shelter that they need. And in him, the orphans and strangers and lost sheep will have a family and a home. He will be homeless without a place to lay his head so he can be the way for them to live in his father's house and feast at his table forever. And we come to the, one of the last great scenes of the Bible, the scene we anticipate every Sunday. It is the great wedding feast of the Lamb. When those who have received his invitation of life come and feast at his heavenly table, filled with only joy, when all sadness and loneliness and spiritual exile are banished forever. And let me say, non-Christians, whether you are young or old, God is inviting you over. And you can spend your life in a wilderness, trying to dig for water out of dry wells and trying to eat garbage. Or you can come in by believing in Jesus and have a feast beyond every other feast full of joy and glory and gladness. All you must do is repent of loving garbage more than God, loving sin more than Jesus, and let Jesus pay for those sins and welcome you in at his table. God is not a reluctant host. He doesn't urge you to wash off first and then come in. He invites you to come and be cleaned by his son and then to come sit at his table. Brothers and sisters, since this is the end we are preparing for, this great, glorious feast in which Christians from every tribe and ethnicity and nation and social standing, this, this is heaven. This is what we are anticipating. Then yes, it should affect our lives, budget, priorities, practices, passions right now. This is precisely the point that Jesus makes in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered 
all the nations. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And what is one description that will identify who are the sheep and who are the goats? What do you think Jesus is going to say? A lot he could have said, but what does he choose to say here? He will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For what identifies the sheep of the shepherd? What demonstrates that they know of his hospitality? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it too. But we must also feel the full force of this as a warning as well. Lest we be tempted to neglect this plain and simple instruction and spend our time that should be spent inviting people over looking for a more complicated vision of Christian faithfulness. Listen how Jesus continues. He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For what identifies those who in this passage should have only the expectation of condemnation from a hospitable God? I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? Did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it. To one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What does a dinner invitation have to do with the end of the world? Everything. Everything. It reveals who we belong to. The end of all things is at hand. The master of the banquet comes. And he comes to find what his 
underservants are doing. Surely, surely, we must not idolize the, the safety of our schedules or the preservation of our carpets or the best food for ourselves. Surely, if we can use this metaphor, surely the, the appetizers of the great feast can take place in our own homes. The first sounds of the great celebration can be heard in our kitchens when brothers and sisters in Christ rejoice in him together. Alexander Strzok again says, the presence of Christian brothers and sisters in our homes is a foretaste of our glorious heavenly dwelling place that will be filled with people, angels, and the perfect host, the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely the great shepherd can use our living rooms to call his weary sheep to rest. Surely the Father can use our food to feed his children. Surely, the Savior can use our rooms to give shelter to any lost sheep in need. Do not separate eschatology from hospitality. God does not. Do not separate preparation for the return of Christ from hospitality for the people of Christ. Listen, if you are a Christian, you can do this. It's not about impressing anybody. It's not about having a perfectly clean home. It's not about being a great cook. It's not about having perfect children. It's not about having all the best organization in the world. It's about saying, welcome. We'd love to have you. Share what we have. This is a time of cultures shaking, of morals declining, of national and political parties rising up against each other, of sickness and angst and rage and self-righteous indignation. What are we to do? There's a number of clear commands in the scripture that we're to do. We're to be sober-minded. We're to be self-controlled. We're to obey Jesus. We're to gather with his people. We're to sing the songs of the great celebration. There's, there's things that are clearly given to us to do. But one point of biblical clarity that God has told us directly to do, we are to join his story of welcoming his people home. And we are to use our homes to welcome them until Christ Jesus comes to take us all home together. 
We are to use our food to feed his sheep. We are to use our water to quench the thirst of his little ones. Since the end of all things is at hand, since Christ is returning, all the more we must show hospitality without grumbling, far from grumbling. We must do it with joy and privilege and honor, knowing that Christ himself identifies with that brother or sister who walks through our front door. Until the return of Christ, let us welcome the people of Christ with joy into our homes. Let this be the lifestyle of the end times Christian. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you as a pastor for the many, many times the members of this church have welcomed one another into their homes. Lord, that is an evidence of your grace and should produce assurance in their hearts. Thank you, Lord, for the good work you've done in them. Lord, cause us to grow more and more to offer our homes, our possessions, our food, Lord, to you for your service, for your people. Lord, cause us to be a, a welcoming church, a hospitable church, a church that, that gladly shelters our brothers and sisters in small ways and in desperate moments. Lord, thank you for the privilege of letting us join your story. But we're only doing this because you, you welcomed us. You paid for us. You are the host who took the great bill and seated us at your table. So receive our gratefulness, Lord, as we sing. In Jesus' name.